welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. So last week, we started looking at this imagery of the Good Shepherd. This imagery that streams itself and weaves itself throughout Scripture, starting back in Genesis up through the New Testament. This imagery that was prophetic used in a parabolic manner. And as I said, was central to the early Christian self-understanding as a people. And last week we looked at the significance of this, but then focused on understanding the role of the shepherd and, and how that was understood with regard to the leaders of the people of God and the nature of the sheep and how that shaped an understanding of God's use of that imagery over and over again to describe his people. And then we finish by closing, by looking at the emphasis of the qualifier of good. that was necessary because throughout all of these uses of this imagery of God as the shepherd is always in contrast to the multitude of bad shepherds that always existed and led God's people. And so this week, I want to continue off of that, but look more closely at the historical context, um, spanning roughly 600 years from the time of Ezekiel to Jesus, that is the backdrop of this good shepherd imagery or picture. And then um, I want to focus on, in light of that, Jesus' shocking claim and the unexpected twist that Jesus gives to this famous biblical imagery. And then I'll finish with a few reflections on a couple of the ways that I think this, this idea, this imagery of Christ the Good Shepherd applies to us today. So first... Whisking us away about uh, 2,600 years, roughly, in the past. Whenever we get back to right around 598 BC. In the southern kingdom of Judah. After the kingdom of Israel, after the people had been split to northern and southern kingdoms. And at this time, the northern kingdom had already been conquered by the rising great world power that was Babylon. And they were beginning to move their way, sending raid after raid into the southern kingdom, into Judah, into Jerusalem. And in 598 BC, they had gone in on a raid and taken some of the the people of Israel, some of the Jews, with them back to Babylon as prisoners 
And one of those prisoners was the prophet Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel, finding himself stuck in a prison cell or a prison camp in Babylon, writes much of the prophecy that we have recorded in the book of Ezekiel. And as he is stuck in this prison cell, he is writing against and and hearing of all of these false prophets, corrupt elders, and an inept king who are running around acting as if all will be well. In chapter 13, if you look at it, um, he breaks down and condemns these false prophets. He says they go around saying, thus saith the Lord. Telling and, and speaking to the king, giving him to hear what he wants to hear. That God would not let his people fall, would not let his great nation crumble. And that God was going to deliver them and there was going to be peace in Jerusalem. The problem is is that it wasn't true. And as much as that's what the people wanted to hear, that's not what God was saying. And so Ezekiel was taxed with the unpopular message that Jerusalem will indeed fall. And that God's people will be scattered. And that they will fall under foreign pagan oppression. And in 586 B.C., that is exactly what happened. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. They came marching in in power and destroyed the temple. And despite all of the affirmations, the prophets that told the king what he wanted to hear so that they could be in his favor, that king was blinded and take it captive back to Babylon. And it's in the midst of this, probably the darkest moment of Israel's history. And if you know Israel's history, they've had a lot of dark moments. That God speaking through Ezekiel has him pen chapter 34. Pointing towards a future hope, a hope that will carry them through this most horrific of times, is the hope for a truly good shepherd, one who would be a stark contrast to all of the false prophets, the opportunistic elders, and the impotent kings and rulers. There's a hope that one day that God himself would rescue them and lead them as a truly good shepherd. And he does so proclaiming through 34 that God was going to come and he was going to seek them out. He was not going to wait for them to come back to him. He was going to come into their midst and come after them. He was going to rescue them. Not giving them words of wisdom that they can follow so they can get themselves back to safety, but he would rescue them and he would carry them himself back to safety. 
that he would enable them then to lie down in peace. Free from the threat of the predators, the beasts, the wolves that were out to kill them and devour them. To lay down in peace in green pastures, no longer facing want or need. And what's interesting is these prophecies of Ezekiel were not popular at the time because he was saying what the people did not want to hear. And yet in God's providence, they held on to these words. That's why we have them today. That's why they can be printed in your bulletin. Or kept. Because though unpopular, his words were the word of God. And they latched on to this promise that God would come and be their shepherd, guiding them and directing them. And they held on to it a lot longer than they ever thought they needed to. Because the exile persisted. The oppression and occupation continued. And they continued to have numerous bad shepherds that would come and lead them. And then we find ourselves, if you take that kind of jumping forward, fast forwarding 600 years to the time of Jesus. When he comes and resurrects this prophetic picture of the good shepherd in John 10. But in doing so, he makes a very unexpected, quite shocking claim. So I said, the exile had continued in one form or another for 600 years. And this is an oversimplification of what it looked like. But the thing, what happened was that you had the Babylonians who were in power and they were oppressing the people. And then eventually their power waned and then the Persians took over. And then after the Persians, they were replaced by the Greeks. And then after the Greeks, you had Rome. So, in the midst of that, the people were still waiting for this promised good shepherd that was going to be God in their midst. And all along through this process, if you read through Scripture, if you read through the Apocrypha, they account some of this. If you read through history, there were continually, over and over again, Shepherds proclaiming to be sent by God, proclaiming to even have the words of God, telling the people that if they followed them, they would lead them to green pastures, that they would lie down in safety. Providing false promises and empty hope. And in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people were still scattered. Even the ones who lived in Jerusalem, New Testament scholars reading the documents and writings of the first century Jews in that time, even when they were in Jerusalem, they still understood themselves to still be in exile. With many of Israel scattered through what was called the Diaspora, throughout all of known Rome. They were still under foreign occupation. And they were still littered with shepherds guiding God's flock for personal gain. 
And then in this context, we have Jesus drawing upon this ancient imagery, this ancient promise that comes from Ezekiel, but comes from more than just Ezekiel, from numerous of the prophets, from the Psalms. And when he does so, speaking of the good shepherd, he follows in many ways Ezekiel's pattern. First, noting the existence of the bad shepherds. Jesus speaks about those who came before him, talking about them as robbers and thieves. Those who are hired hands where when soon as threat comes, they run, protect themselves instead of God's people. And as you look at this and as you study this, there's different, different debates about who this is exactly referencing. I mean, it could be the political leaders of the day. Those within the Herodian dynasty. Using the people of Israel to get wealthy, to gain land and power. It could be the religious leaders of the day. Some of whom were cuddling up with Rome. So they could build a a, a name. Wealth that could be handed down through their generations. And, And other religious leaders who would would heap blame and burden upon the sheep and upon those who are outside of the flock, building their own self-sense of justification and superiority, such as the Pharisees. But also there were numerous false messiahs for the hundreds of years leading up to the time of Jesus who all came promising that they were going to be the ones that were going to deliver the people of God and lead them to the green pastures, which was imagery used for that coming of the kingdom of God that they so waited for. But I think likely, and in a lot of scholars think that Jesus intentionally uses broad imagery here because it, it's to capture all of them. To pull it all together. But then, he not only follows the path of Ezekiel by pointing out the bad shepherds, he begins to draw upon the hopeful imagery of the good shepherd. Used by Ezekiel, found in Jeremiah, found in Zechariah. And he uses this imagery that all of them used, and it's imagery that was always used and attributed to God. It was understood that God was going to be the true, the good shepherd, that God was going to come, and God was going to do all of these things. And they were waiting for God to come, come after them, be in their midst, and do what he had claimed to do. And it is in the context of that language that Jesus uses and speaks to these people who are longing and waiting for these prophecies to occur. And he says, I am the good shepherd. It may not shock us. But if you were even somewhat biblically literate as a Jew in the first century, you would have probably at least fallen out of your seat, maybe made you want to vomit, or given you complete shock 
to hear him say those words. Because Jesus' audience would have known that the language Jesus was using was referring to what they had longed for, was referring to what we read just a portion of in Ezekiel 34. The promise that God himself would come to rescue them as the shepherd of his people. And there would have been little confusion about what Jesus was inferring by that shocking statement. I am the good shepherd. They would have known, or most would have understood that that there was words of blasphemy. And they are. They are blasphemous words, unless it just so happens to be true. And that's why, if you read on past this, the end of what we put into the bulletin, a couple of verses later, it says in verse 20 that many of the Jews said that Jesus was clearly demon-possessed and insane. Because he made such a shocking claim. And so we have the shocking claim and then now the unexpected twist. Not only does he make such a shocking claim that all they had looked for, all they had waited for, all the hope that they had put in Yahweh to come and to be their shepherd, he says, I am he. And then he adds salt to the wounds by taking this imagery further than any prophet ever had. As we read in the gospel reading today, not only was he the good shepherd that would seek out the sheep and selflessly rescue the sheep, his selfless care for the sheep would go beyond rescuing his sheep from the wolves and would take the form of allowing himself to be killed by the wolves and the wild beasts. After 600 years of being scattered, facing abuse and oppression from those outside the flock in the wilderness and those within who are acting like shepherds, they were looking for God to come as a strong man leader. They wanted a strong man shepherd. No one was expecting God to come as one of the sheep. And he did. In the form of a servant. A peasant kid who was assumed to be a bastard. But he wasn't just any sheep. He came as a sacrificial lamb. No one would have ever expected that God, our shepherd, would manifest as a sacrificial lamb who lays down his life to rescue the sheep, to then take it back up again that he might lead them to green pastures, that he might lead them to the kingdom of God. But he doesn't just expand upon this imagery of the good shepherd in that manner, but he even goes further by expanding the scope of his flock. He says that he not only has done this, given laying down his life for the sheep to rescue them, 
Not only for those who are assumed to be within the flock, but also those whom in the first century viewed as the robbers and the thieves and the wild beasts. In verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Essentially, through Jesus' use of this parable and prophetic imagery that weaves throughout all of Scripture, Jesus is saying that the hope and promise of God's rescue of his people, his coming after them and bringing them to true safety and flourishing, the reality that all have been longing for for over 600 years, a longing that had led many to follow thieves and robbers, role-playing as shepherds, is fulfilled in him. And he does so not only by becoming a better shepherd than the ones driven by selfishness and self-justification, but by fully giving of himself, laying down his life for the sake of the sheep by the way of the cross. And he does so not only for the scattered sheep assumed to be part of the herd, but also for those assumed to be enemies of God's people. So Jesus takes this important and this profound imagery that laid so tightly in the people of Israel's own self-understanding. It was so hopeful and so beautiful and made it greater and grander than anyone had ever imagined. But it was no longer a prophecy nor a parabolic imagery, but a reality that he embodied himself and continues today. And so I want to give just quickly two applications, I, I, I guess reflections as I think about it, and just two because there are hundreds. There's a reason why this, this imagery is so rich and so intertwined throughout Scripture and throughout the early church's history. But first, I want to just look and think about the shepherds that we do follow. Last Sunday, and then mentioning today, that both Ezekiel and Jesus used the good shepherd in imagery in contrast to the bad shepherds. But as I mentioned last week, oddly, that doesn't lead to God removing the necessity and role of earthly shepherds. But this imagery and this, this important picture that Jesus assumes fully and completely in himself is a reminder that all earthly shepherds are ultimately sheep. And all shepherds, earthly shepherds, are commissioned to simply point toward the good shepherd. In, in, in John 10, in Jesus' use of the good shepherd, he talks about how the, his sheep will know his voice. And those who are, are outside the flock will hear and listen to his voice. 
Brothers and sisters, those who function as earthly shepherds function in a manner and should do so for the primary and actually central point of pointing past their own voice to the voice of the good shepherd. This is not a platform to gain influence or to have your voice heard, or to fulfill any personal agenda apart from having their voice fade into the background as it is drowned out by the voice of Christ calling out to his scattered sheep through the gospel. One of the the gifts, one of the things I appreciate about what has been handed to us through the ancient liturgy, and and I I say this because there are values and there's, there's pitfalls. I'm not saying that, that in contrast or against any other form of worship, but one thing I do really appreciate about the ancient pattern of worship that was given to us is that it's structured in a manner where my voice is extremely minimized. The vast majority of anybody who stands and, and, and celebrates and leads the liturgy, the vast majority of what is said is not their own words. It's not coming from me. And the majority of the words that are used, that I recite as we recite together, are words drawn from God's word, from Scripture. That's why it was so important, and it is in our tradition so important, that when celebrating the Eucharist, um, that's one place I'm not allowed to deviate Because I'm not inviting you to Christ's table. Jesus is. And the last words that are spoken are the words Jesus spoke. In the place where I have the biggest voice, or anyone who is up leading has the biggest voice, is in the sermon. I'm trying to minimize my voice. I'm struggling. That's why my sermons are still so long. I'm working on it. But still, that's, that's, the one, that's really the one place. But even there in the liturgy, there was a rhythm that was placed in there. And if you notice, as soon as I'm done preaching, we stand up. Almost as if you guys are saying to me, and this is what we actually believe. And you recite the historic faith of the church. And secondly, Jesus' expansion of the Good Shepherd theme should be a caution for how we think about and how we treat those outside Christ's flock, outside the church. Jesus' expansion of the Good Shepherd theme shares that the one who has come and laid down his life to seek out those who are lost is not simply for those who are within what they think as his flock. And what would have been so shocking to the first century is the idea that this act that they had longed for and waited for was actually going to be not just for them, but also those they perceived to be their threat and their oppressors. For those outside the flock. 
And so that same beautiful imagery of God's grace coming after us. Rescuing us and carrying us. That we might find healing, redemption, and restoration in green pastures. It's the imagery of what Christ is still doing for each and every person who right now are not within the fold. And this is spoken of and not qualified by Jesus because it is regardless of why they find themselves separated from Christ and his church. There's no qualifications there. It's just that they have been scattered. Not trying to determine why they were scattered. And this applies to even those who are in, who in their separation harbor animosity towards Christ and his people. And I think that that's where it is helpful for us to continue to use this imagery over and over again in understanding ourselves to be sheep and him to be our shepherd. Because I think easily, I often, and, and, and at times, we can have an us versus them mentality and then view ourselves as, as, as those who are in the flock because somehow we are superior sheep. And they are outside of the flock because they are inferior or more evil or more corrupt. But if you look at the imagery in Ezekiel and look at the imagery in Jeremiah, if you look at the imagery within Jesus, what does it say about the sheep? The sheep is just scattered, vulnerable, and lost. And the shepherd seeks out the sheep. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, it says he picks them up and carries them to green pastures. Picking them up and putting them on over, over his shoulders. Bearing their burdens that they might be brought back into the flock. That really doesn't say anything about the superiority, goodness, or significance of the sheep. But it says everything about the goodness of the shepherd. And this is the framework, this is the imagery that we need to be viewing all of those who are outside of the fold. Who are separated from Christ and his church. And as a church, this needs to be our continual plea and our heartbeat that somehow through us and God's marvelous grace, the good shepherd might bring many out of the clutches of those prowling in the wilderness and restore them to the security and health that is found in his pasture. And this is why we are planting. One of the main reasons why we are planting because there are far too many within our community that are scattered, separated from Christ and his church. And for many different reasons. But guess what? It doesn't matter. What matters to Christ is that they're separated. And that they would be brought back by the Good Shepherd. That they might hear His voice, know His voice, 
And as he says, we'll listen to his voice. One thing that's really interesting to me is no matter how bitter one might be, no matter how educated one might be, as I engage and encounter and talk to those who, who, are, who are separated from Christ in his church, who, who, who are separated out, very rarely have I ever met anybody who, is, who has heard Christ's voice clearly speaking and proclaiming the gospel in his true sense and then are separated because they have rejected that. That needs to be our prayer. We can't make people listen to his voice. But there are so many out there who are separated from him, not because they've rejected his voice, but they have not heard it clearly. His voice needs to be heard. So, Jesus said, I and the good shepherd. And we are his sheep. May we rejoice in knowing that at the cost of his own life, we have been by grace brought to a place of true security, of healing and deep rest found in the green pastures of his gospel. And there are many more not of this fold that he is seeking out to carry home through that same gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons, and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue.